Welcome to 21st Century Renaissance, hosted by Bei Bei Song, produced by Essinova. Episode 3, Curiosity in the Art of Reimagining Scientific Discovery, with Rebecca Kamen. Part 2. Another part of your, 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 your story, your journey as an uh, artist in, in, this, in this intersection, was your earlier experience in China, a collaboration with um, a Chinese sign, um, Chinese sculptor. Sculptor, yes. Zhao Tong was uh, from Chengdu, Sichuan mm-hmm. province. Mm-hmm. What happened was I was invited to China in 87 um, and I was flown out to Sichuan province. I'd never been there before. And he was my host and we just really hit it off. He spoke no English. I spoke no Chinese, but through drawing and, you know, just being curious, we really came up with this idea of wouldn't it be exciting to collaborate on a sculpture that celebrated the scientific um, and technological discoveries of the East and West. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating because um, everything, a lot of stuff originated in China and had access because of the research that I was there to look at things. And this was back even pre-computer. So this was like in the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. And I got to meet Joseph Needham in Cambridge, who was at the time considered the the foremost scholar of ancient Chinese discoveries. Oh, yeah. Met him, he was 94. It was Mm -hmm. incredible. And I mean, I just feel so full of gratitude to have had these kinds of experiences and be the curious person that I am um, and just follow through on them because it's really enabled me to sort of build this richness um, in my life as a person and and as an artist and and also as a a professor. I mean, I just love to be able to go out and share these experiences with others Mm -hmm. and try Mm -hmm. to inspire them, you know, to be curious on their Mm -hmm. life journey. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that uh, period in in China, I wonder if you learned about uh, Shen Kuo and, and Su Dongpo, who were the, well, we all know in the Western world, Leonardo da Vinci is the consummate polymath. So Shen Kuo and Su Dongpo back in the Song Dynasty, where a lot of the scientific discoveries and inventions were, were made, they were they were the, the Chinese Leonardo da Vinci's three or four hundred years before the European Renaissance. Especially Shen Kuo, he was a you know mathematician, ethnographer, cartographer, astronomist, and and he was um, the, I think he was the 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 one who discovered the concept of true north. So he was very learned in astronomy. He was a hydraulic engineer. He was a he had a, a government post as well, and um, in his spare time he. He wrote poetry and music, and he was an art critic. <laughs> so it was very, very polymathic, for, for sure. And, and well, so was uh, Su Zhongpo. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what's interesting to me, and, and I think when I think about uh, scientific discovery, the Chinese and contributions, is, is the invention of, of the compass. 
Mm-hmm. And as and I have a wonderful, beautiful little miniature model that I purchased in China. Is that without that we would you and I wouldn't be here, <laughs> you know? Because it, it it really was such a to me such a significant discovery in in being able to find place, you mm-hmm. know, where we are in in the world in the universe. Mm-hmm. So that uh, to me is really significant. And just I I mean it was so such an incredible time to be in China. In the capacity that I was, I wasn't just a tourist. I was being taken to places that most tourists never get to visit, you know, to, to look at these just extraordinary astronomical uh, instruments, which is always interesting to me, and just really trying to reimagine what precipitated that discovery. You know, mm-hmm. same way I do that now when I'm in labs with scientists, you know, what what is the catalyst that makes this all possible? And to me, it goes back to curiosity. It's 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 humanity of wanting to know mm-hmm. and to try to figure out how things work. Mm-hmm. It, it's a it's a shame that you eventually didn't get to make that sculpture garden that you both envisioned. But I was thinking, well, later on, you created this, uh, the elemental garden, and a sculpture garden did um, eventually uh, come into being, even though it's a, in a different context. And that elemental garden speaks to me because you spoke about the, the boring periodic table. In my high school, I was probably the weakest in chemistry in terms of my subject. So the periodic table um, <laughs> was always um, something that reminds me of my inadequacies. But that the fact that you were able to make something beautiful out of that periodic table, the, the, the boring table, and looking at that sculpture garden, that's so inviting, especially when it's... Um, accompanied with the sound it's so powerful because it's both kinesthetic so you're inviting the viewer to go you know experience it through walking through it interact physically interacting with it and hearing it and just to make you feel a little bit better i didn't have the best chemistry experience either and that's why when I came back from this lecture tour and the periodic table came into my head. I thought, what is this about? But for me, it took me a really long time. It took me about two years to research it and try to understand its meaning for me. And I think its meaning was that it's so significant because it represents the world above, below, and everything in between. I mean, it is... That I haven't thought of. I think that's a great new insight. Mm-hmm, yeah, it's powerful. And that's why I think people responded to it. This, this was shown in a, a Northern Virginia suburban artist space, a wonderful space. It was actually a, a, hex, a, a hexagonal space. And they had over 5,000 people that came to view it in like a six-week period. It broke like all attendance records. And now, granted, they brought schools and things, but as a new way of reimagining chemistry. But I mean, it's it's been written up in 
British chemistry journals and in chemistry journals. And I love the fact that you could create something as an artist that reimagines something significant in science and inspire scientists, you know, because scientists are hard to inspire sometimes. <laughs> uh, that's just between you and me, but, but not actually there. I find scientists are very curious and have been very welcoming to me when mm -hmm. I've been invited into their spaces. Some scientists, they, you don't need to convince them. They already know the value of of art and even philosophy. You had a quote from the Tower of Physics. The author, obviously, he, not necessarily art, but he sees the connection between science and uh, mysticism and, and philosophy. I'm curious in the wide spectrum of the scientific community, how are the different ways individual scientists engage with you one way or, or, or another. I, I'm curious because different people have different styles and scientists, obviously they do as well. Right. Well, I mean, what's interesting and, and sometimes I'll start a lecture by um, making people or scientists realize and scholars, especially that uh, before the advent of the camera, scientists had to be artists. I mean, it's the only way that they could capture and record. And, I, and, I, and of course, I follow that with beautiful illustrations, not done by artists, but done by scientists. And that the advent of the camera really changed how scientists recorded what they did. And I like to think of myself as more of early scientists, what we call natural philosophers. So I, and I, and I share all this with scientists sometimes even before I get started, because that allows me to look at something holistically. So what's happened now, science has gotten so huge and so complex because we have access to more information that what happens is that unfortunately now scientists can only deal with very minute, small parts of a large pie. They're not people like Aristotle, uh, Plato, they're not, they don't have the time, first of all, because they're answering emails like all of us, or, you know, the computer has been a blessing and a curse. But I mean, it's really interesting in how science is done. And, and I'm very interested in the history of science. And that's something that I always like to research before I start any project is, you know, its origins. How did it get started? What, what really was the initial spark that made people curious to want to discover things about things? I'm, I'm even curious why certain scientists study what they do. I mean, some of them spend years and years and years looking at one cell, tiny little cell and how it works and when you talk to them, they're as enthusiastic as I am about discovery. You know, their, their discovery process is a little bit different than mine. And I think that they appreciate the fact that even though I do not have formal science training, that I have that same passion and curiosity to discover. And that's what, what I think really is the conduit between what we do is curiosity and discovery. I think that's the thing that really 
keeps us getting up every day and going into the lab or going into the studio to see what's going to be revealed to us. Then figuring out through visualization how to share that with others. And I think what scientists have come to realize as an artist, part of the gift I come into the world with is I know how to visualize things. And when I show them what I create and what has inspired it, they seem very receptive of wanting to invite me in to work with them and to brainstorm. Actually, what was very interesting, the complex systems lab that I work with at, at Penn, one of my collaborators, I never had any idea what their feelings were about anything, about us working together. Scientists aren't always the most coming forward with their feelings about things. Uh, some are, but not most in general. It's just not the way they're trained. And Penn did this beautiful article uh, where they actually interviewed these scientists. And it was the first time I actually found out that working together helped them to really push their science further than they ever dreamed. <laughs> and it was so interesting to me because that was never disclosed to me, you know, face to face. I had to read about it in an article that the university was writing about this collaboration. Mm. I, I, tell me more about that because it's for people, when you say art and science working together, it's easy for people to understand art communicating science because science is dry and but it's you know, not. distancing and, and art <laughs> makes it beautiful. And certainly, you know, you have plenty of examples of, of your art making whatever feel that you are um, interacting with more inviting and more beautiful. But what people don't naturally understand is how art can catalyze and influence scientific discovery. So if you could give some concrete examples of that, that would be helpful. Well, it's funny you should mention that now because uh, I'm starting a new project that, <laughs> that I've been working on um, probably for about five years. And I always know when a project takes that long to birth, it's probably going to be pretty amazing because that's what happened with the periodic table project. I wasn't sure what was going on with that. And then when it birthed, it was like, this is incredible. So one of the things that has, uh, that has crossed my path was uh, a collection of Aboriginal memory stones from some collectors in Australia. And, and I collect gem and minerals. I, I've been collecting stones and things like that since I've been a little girl. And my whole studio is feels like it's a geology class if you if you were if you ever came to my studio. And so anyway, it, what was interesting to me was I, I, I'm very intuitive and I have spent some time in Australia. I've been very, very interested in what we call indigenous knowledge. And I put that in the same category with my experiences in China. You know, people that aren't necessarily formally trained, but are very intuitive and, and make incredible discoveries. 
And when I was in Australia, and I'm very intuitive and, and feel very connected to places, people, things, I just felt very deeply connected to the land there. And I don't know why, but I did, because uh, I spent a little bit of time in the outback. And so anyway, I had this idea that there was some kind of connections to the Aboriginal uh, practice of what we call song lines of, um, and, and song lines deal with um, memory, memory of land. And I felt like there was some kind of connection with that and with the navigational systems in the brain, um, what's going on there. And so I'm in the process right now um, of sort of reimagining something that I can't even put language to yet. I'm, I'm just in the beginning stages of it, even though I've been researching it for about five years. And I'm very excited about where it might take me because in doing some initial research, I ran into a woman who is a microbiologist or cellular biologist, sorry, who has really been impacted by Aboriginal paintings. And what was so interesting about her insights about that is she's very similar to me in that she can look at these and she can see the relationships of how these paintings are deeply connected to indigenous knowledge. And what's interesting to me is there occasionally I do find scientists that have these sort of deep connections with cultural forms in other cultures. And I really feel it informs their work, their own research. And that's really exciting to me um, because I know that occasionally I run into a scientist like that. And I know that they're as deeply connected as I am. They just use science to express their observations and discoveries. If, if any of that makes sense. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah, that, that, sounds, that sounds interesting too. I, somehow I'm reminded, do, do you know of uh, Rupert Sheldrick, who's proposed the, the concept of morphic resonance, and it's a lot about the collective memory of, a, of I'm, I'm not doing it justice, a memory that passes on, not necessarily individual, but, but a whole system. It's 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 a controversial concept over the years, but it it, it could be interesting to uh, <laughs> to look at. And into. it could lead us to places we'd never be able to go to unless we were open to that possibility. I mean, I try to be open to everything as mm -hmm. crazy as it might sound, because sometimes there's a little kernel of truth even in something that might be outlandish that mm -hmm. you can feed something else you're working on. So I try to be like an open portal as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Curiosity. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so speaking of, you know, you spoke a lot about curiosity and um, I read a little about their, um, their research. Uh, at first I thought, hmm, wow, how, how does an artist portray concept so abstract as curiosity? 
but then it was uh, it was interesting to 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 see the framework that they came up with, and the um, the different types of um, pursuing something the, the 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 hunters versus the busybody and the the dancers, and I guess they see you as a as a as a dancer, and I thought that was a <laughs> all over the place. <laughs> yeah, well, I I relate to that. I consider myself a a dancer as well. I'm an amateur dancer, but I also see myself figuratively as a as a dancer, and that's how actually I have uh, this childish drawing that I put on my website, my you know my my uh, professional. Uh, practice website seeing myself as a dancer across different disciplines so that was um, interesting uh, learning from your work with that lab it was it are they at UPAN yes yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. they there they studied complexity Um, in my case uh, we work with semantics so semantics having to do with how I verbally describe things to them It's interesting. One of the ways that I process information and and these projects I do is through PowerPoints. And I create hundreds of PowerPoints to try to visualize my process of discovery. I did it for myself because being a visual learner, they loved it and they, they were able to use the images and me describing, because I look at the images and it allows me to verbalize what I'm understanding. And when they were able to plot that, you know, it just blew me away. And when you went into that exhibition, that's the first thing you saw was about three feet by three feet. We had a monitor and then we had this big data visualization. But before you even got there, there were two big as we call them, Kunstkammers or cabinets of curiosity of objects that were really are really important to me in my collection to really get people to um, spark that memory of being a child again or an adult and collecting things. I think as human beings, we're always collecting things on our journey that, you know, sort of trigger our memories about certain things. And so I thought that was a really great show to do coming off of the pandemic. We were still in the pandemic. People still had to come and wear masks and everything. But I think it really invited them to be curious again, because I think the pandemic has really impacted people. I've been doing uh, quite a few lectures at colleges that deal with curiosity, the creative process, and self-care. And really um, what I'm finding talking to college professor colleagues is that this has really had a a major impact on both faculty and students. So really giving people permission to understand that creating artwork really helps them as a self-care practice to recover from this experience that we have. I personally saw the pandemic as a, a an amazing opportunity for self-reflection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Encouraging people by showing them the art that I created to think about it for them in, in that way for themselves. Because I think, you know, just reimagining just 
that experience is really important. Yeah, I fully agree. And that's why we had, uh, during the pandemic, we had um, two seasons of what I called play shops, um, basically workshops that people come to play. And we were also experimenting this um, virtual environment to see whether that could be conducive to art making or creative practice, doing it together. And it was quite successful. Oh, excellent. And I'm sure it helped a lot of people. Yes. Yeah, definitely. The uh, creative therapy. <laughs> creative therapy. There. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the other thing we were tra- also trying to uh, tackle is, you know, you speak, we speak of, of uh, science being intimidating and art makes it more accessible. On the other hand, art can be intimidating to a lot of people as well. I, I'm a, I'm neither a scientist nor an artist. I'm more of a, a trained in business management and leadership, but I'm a proponent in my field of uh, arts-based learning. So it's not necessarily becoming an artist, but using art as a vehicle for for self-discovery, for for well-being, for self-care, and also for, um, you speak of the creative process and for, for, for innovation. But when I, if you say art, for, you know, among business students, they they recoil, they they uh, push back, and they kind of cringe because they are not artists. Where they're not, they would say, "I'm I, I'm bad at drawing, etc." So, what do you think could be done to encourage people to engage in? whether it's art making or arts-based creative practice for whatever they're pursuing, whether you call it art or not, whether it's younger people or or adults who do not have that, including myself, for example, who do not have any training in art. You're an art educator, but how for, for people who are not necessarily bought into art, how can you encourage them to engage with art making? or using well, art as, as part of their personal professional life? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. And um, one of the things that sometimes I'm invited to do when, I, when I, I'm invited to come on cam- different campuses is to work with science, with science students and science majors. And one of the things that I like to do is give them a series of scientific processes and then, um, and, and we did this in Singapore right before the pandemic. I was invited, someone had heard me speak uh, at a professional conference here and invited me to come to Singapore. And what we did is we had art educators, each art educator brought a science colleague, friend, whatever, to this workshop. And what we did is I had a list of different scientific phenomena and they had to work together to solve a problem of how to visualize that. And, you know, the scientists were a little hesitant first, but, you know, they came along. The artists were a little hesitant because they didn't really know much about science, but it created this wonderful, rich dialogue for them to brainstorm and to the science person explained what the phenomenon was. And then the art person said, well, you know, we could do this and this. And they created the most extraordinary projects as a team. And then they they got to present them. And I, I've done that before. And I find that sometimes it works 
It works really well as a way, because the bottom line, science, science is only as good as it can be visualized. I mean, that's the bottom line. And you have, and what I do when I do these kinds of workshops, I, I do a whole PowerPoint where I show scientific models that's not artist built, but scientists in order to communicate their discovery. And I think once you couch it in that way, it doesn't seem as alien. I mean, I once had a neuroscience institute invite me. This is so weird. I had just come back from the Cajal Institute and they said, could you help our um, scientists do a better job at designing their project, their presentation of their projects so they'll get on the cover of magazines? And it's like, what? Now, I taught design for 35 years, so that wasn't that much of a stretch, but I guess scientists now are really feel compelled that they need to get stuff on the cover of science magazines, and the way you do that is to make it look good, or, you know, there's certain rules of composition, design, whatever, but I think once I count it as we both deal with visualization, and before the advent of the camera, scientists had to be able to draw and paint or fabricate something that express expresses what their discovery is. Then it's not as threatening to them. You know, mm-hmm. it makes perfect sense to them. Mm-hmm. Thing is, a part of my practice, I, I want to really express the poetics of science. I mean, that's really important to me. And a lot of times when I say that to scientists, they they understand that because, and I think that's one of the reasons I get invited quite a bit in scientific communities, because I give a scientist permission to think about what they do as beautiful, as beauty. And actually, I'm very excited. A group reached out to me probably about two or three months ago from Catholic University. It's a group of sociologists. And they're actually doing a symposium that deals with the aesthetics of science. Mm. And they got a big grant to research this. And someone had seen this exhibition or this work that I created for the reveal exhibition. And they invited me. They said, could you come and do an exhibition for this two-day symposium? And I said, unfortunately, I can't because I don't live in D.C. anymore. And but. I said, I'd love to contribute. So I'm going to be on one of the panels. I, it's mostly scholars. I don't really consider myself a scholar. I'm a universal investigator. And <laughs> so my, my panel is going to be discussing scientific objects and their significance. And I'm really excited about the PowerPoint that I put together for my very short presentation, Mm. because I feel at the core of what scientists do is that discovery is about beauty. And that's what the symposium's about, because they interviewed all these scientists all over the world about components of what they do in terms of beauty. And it was powerful. (laughs) I mean, it was really fascinating to me that scientists and artists really are looking at the same things 
and we're looking at it for its poetics and beauty. They might not use those words, but you can when you talk to them, they're as excited for the same reasons I am. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. yeah. Um, so, so your primary medium is Myla. Correct. Uh, first of all, what do you like about it? Well, I've been using it for about 30 or 35 years. So I've been using it a really long time. I like it because it's flexible. I can color it in a way people have no idea what it is. It's a very mysterious material. It's very lightweight. Like, for instance, um, I just finished up a project. Again, I was curious. I (laughs) reached out to a woman who works with microfossil pollen at LSU. And um, I reached out to her a couple of years ago and she was very curious about my practice, invited me to come to LSU. And I did a a lecture to biology uh, colleagues. And as a result of that, she said, would you be willing to collaborate with me um, on an, a National Science Foundation grant. I said, oh, absolutely, for sure. So she applied for one and didn't get it. And then about two years ago, she wrote me, she said, I hope you're still interested because I got the grant and I got funding for you. <laughs> I said, oh, of course, yeah. So anyway, for uh, the last year, um because of the research they were doing with this microfossil pollen, she had asked if I could uh, fabricate sculptures inspired by the morphology of of these different species. So I did, I did, uh, I think I did uh, 10 sculptures, 10 or 11 sculptures, and actually they were just shipped off and again, made out of mylar. So they were very light, which I like. You can, I can install them on the wall. I can take them off the wall. I can put them in flat files. So uh, it's a material that's very chameleon-like because again, people don't have any idea what it is. So Mm -hmm. it's very transformable. It's it's certainly intrigued me because it seems so delicate. I didn't know at the time when I first came across your work what it was, but it seemed so delicate. At the same time, it has structure. Uh, It it can be a sculpture and um, it's so flexible and it's, yeah. It can be any different kind of shapes and colors. It takes colors really well as well. (laughs) Yeah, it does. And people say, you cut that by hand? And And someone in a lecture said to me, what do you use to cut it? And I said, exacto blades. And they said, you should write to exacto. They should give you a grant of as many. <laughs> I must have gone through a million in my career so far. Um, and I just, I love it. For me, it's a, it's a working meditation. You know, I don't want to, and, and there's slight imperfections. You know, if, if I had this milled a machine did it, it, it would be machined. And I, I don't want that. I want people to feel the hand of the artist, you know, mm-hmm. in, in whatever I create. That's really mm-hmm. important to me. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I wanted to ask you that. So that's the first question. Um, you know, obviously this material, this medium is very tactile, <laughs> you know, very hands-on and, and, and has a lot of uh, physical properties. 
you interact with science and you spoke about the the ages before camera and then the camera happened and of course there's um, microscope and and today there's AI so there have been various kinds of machinery so camera certainly inhibited in some way of, of that process that we we're talking about through uh, drawing but later on it also um, became an, an art form itself and some scientists use uh, whether it's photography or microscopy to express their artistic side. And now there's the AI, which is the ultimate, maybe not the other, but definitely a lot more powerful machine. And the uh, complexity research project involved AI. And, and you worked with it. Um, my, my question is from, from your perspective, how you, you know, you spoke about it being a little scary you know it's a little it's scary to me as well and I think to lots of people especially in where AI is now creating art in some ways right. of course of course that's that's controversial whether it's creating or, or, or what but um, it certainly is is encroaching upon the territory which used to be exclusive to humans in making creating creating art. So I wondered, you know, what, what your thoughts are when it comes to AI, AI and art. <laughs> well, I, I, I would, I love AI when I can collaborate with it. I, 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 at least at this moment, I feel like it's a collaborating partner. I haven't actually done it myself. I work with a a doctoral student at Penn um, who is, he's a data visualization whiz, you know, he knows how to program this stuff. I'm not sure if I want to, you know, I like to brainstorm with Dale and, uh, you know, uh, bat around ideas and he'll say, hey, you know, we could do this with AI. And it's like, really? Can you show me? And he does. And it's like, wow, that's really incredible. And what I'm finding is when I take it out to audiences, especially young college students, oh my God, their whole world just has shifted. Uh, actually, last week I was at American University doing a physics colloquium to students there and faculty. The students, I, I couldn't get away from them. They, I went outside. We had a little party outside, a little reception. They cornered me. They wanted, you know, they wanted to talk more about that. And it's their world. I mean, this is the world that they are inheriting. So I think they're curious about it, just like I am. They probably know more about it than I do. I'm getting ready to potentially do a project working with virtual reality, which, and again, it's like, I feel like if you can dream it, you can make it happen. And, you know, it. I come up with these crazy ideas and then someone says, well, you know, we can do that. And it's like, really? And so I don't know how it works. I just am the person that serves as the catalyst. I feel sometimes like I'm catalyst in residence around these scientists. And it's really fun because I think it pushes them to think about stuff in a way they wouldn't because as we mentioned, science can be very myopic um, mm. and for all kinds of reasons. And I'm not putting it down. I'm just saying that's their process 
of discovery based on their career. But I think sometimes I come in and just want to shake it up a little bit. And I think they they really appreciate it because it, it, it extends what they think about and how they think about it in ways they never could ever imagine was possible. And, and it's, it's reciprocal in that it, it, it sort of enables me to feed my curiosity and at the same time, expand theirs. And so I think it's just a win-win for all of us. And mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm just having a great time. <laughs> <laughs> I like the imagery of shaking it up. <laughs> yeah, just really, just you got to. And I think, you know, they trust me enough because they see what I've done. And I think they're, you know, with anything in life, it's trust. And I think I've proven that, you know, I think outside the box, obviously, I really embrace what their disciplines are, their careers, and they can see how I create new bridges between things that they would never even imagine creating bridges. And I think they're curious about it. And I think it helps them think about their science in new ways. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's a win-win for everyone. We both are advocates of polymathic learning, and you have built a rich career. I wonder if you spoke about your reflection. Looking back, did you have to chart your own path? Or was it, I'm trying to get to like the environment that we live in, which since the industrial revolution has been very siloed. And as you spoke of, science becomes so much larger and scientists have to specialize in the, you know, the really smallest and deepest thing. And, and in, in um, getting grants, they have to um, really focus on that specialization. And so, so in this kind of environment, what, what kind of ecosystem has it been for someone like you who is more of a polymath? And for a young person, you know, if there's a young Rebecca somewhere, maybe at the early career, is it getting easier? Is it getting harder? What, what is the kind of ecosystem there is? And, um, and uh, what, in your view, can that ecosystem be? Like, I understand your practice consists of exhibitions, residencies, and teaching as your portfolio, if I understand correctly. How can a, a younger person who has similar a view of, of uh, interdisciplinary learning can be successful pursuing a similar path? What are the ingredients? And um, in terms of the environment, uh, what can be done to provide nurturing and support for such people so that their potential of contributing to society can be maximized. Wow, that sounds like a doctoral dissertation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, all really good questions. Um, I think I was really at the start of a lot of this because, you know, I started looking into this probably around 2010, 2010. 
And I had been awarded a professorship uh, at the college where I taught. They gave me two years off to investigate this. And that's what got me to Harvard, MIT. It got me to a lot of different places. And it, it was at the time really sort of a new field. Not a lot of people knew about it. And so it was a little bit harder, I think, maybe to get my foot in the door but once I did, it was amazing. People are like, well, what can we do to get you back here? I mean, even at Harvard, I couldn't believe it. This is the, the young girl that couldn't even get into college, into a community college and Harvard saying, what can we do to get you back here? <laughs> that was really exciting and a little scary. But I think because I'm curious, because I... If someone says, no, I swim around and try to figure out how it can be yes, you know, and what I have found with my own life and my journey is if it's not working in one way, just shift a little bit. And, and usually in that shift, discovery happens and incredible things happen. And don't be afraid. I... I <laughs> My early years were a lot of people saying, no, 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 you couldn't. And I tell students never, ever be limited by someone else's thoughts. So in that regard, it was challenging, but exciting because, you know, as a trailblazer and someone where this wasn't done before, you, you got to really chart the course. There weren't the expectations because not many people had really done this before or looked at the world in that way. And so that that would be sort of how my journey started. And by the time my professorship was done, I thought, well, you know, I have my 35 years in. I can I can teach but I can do this to larger audiences. So I thought after 35 years, I'm retiring. And I did. And I never looked back because it's enabled me to take the richness of what I learned in the classroom and have the world as my classroom and just really reach out to others. Part of my dyslexia, and, and this has been what I consider a superpower, is it enables me to see connections between things that most people don't. And actually part of the project I did with the complexity group at Penn, the part two part was to really investigate what goes on in my head to, that allows me to process the way I do as a dyslexic person. And that was just fascinating on so many different levels. And then on top of that, it enabled me an opportunity to take that richness and go out and really help others, especially children who really struggle because they're neurodiverse and show them that when you look through a different lens, all things are possible and that you should never, ever be limited by that. Um, now for your next question that deals with what would I create to help others? I think what's exciting now is now universities have courses that really sort of nurture that in students. And I've certainly been invited to programs as a speaker to, to talk about my practice. So I think there's a lot more 
opportunities for people. I had to create my own opportunities, which was fun because I didn't really know what I was doing, but I was curious. And and then people were saying, oh, wow, that's never been done before. But I think we have some money and we can make that happen. Now, a lot of these places are realizing Hmm. that they can fund these kinds of programs Hmm. and invite artists to come in to, you know, collaborate with their other scientists. The other thing I want to mention, which is very interesting, um, and I've I've seen this in other situations, is in medical schools, and I know Penn does this as well in their medical school, is a lot of times they take medical students to art museums and lecture to them or, or teach them how to observe art. And this is really important because if you can really observe art in a certain practice or in a certain way, it teaches you how to listen and observe patients. And they're finding with research with this that it has really been quite successful. So I love the fact that art now is being used to enhance medicine in that way. And, you know, All of us who have to go to a doctor, the fact that they might learn how to listen better as a result of going to an art museum and and learning how to do it in that way makes me feel really great. Stanford has a similar, Stanford Medical School has a similar program, uh, art and medicine. I think it's, it, it makes so much sense. And I think from reports I've had, and then things I've read, they've been very successful and students love it because it just gives them a, a new way of processing information. It's much more dynamic, I think, than sitting and listening to someone, you know, lecturing. They can really be proactive and, and look and, and respond to things. More dynamic and more joyful. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Add joy to the curiosity. Uh, yes. on that inspirational note it was wonderful um uh, talking to you rebecca i'm glad we finally able to meet thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule for us to have this really wonderful dialogue um i really got a lot out of our conversation. It was really a lot of fun. And um, I I really enjoyed our dialogue. I look forward to future ones. Likewise, likewise. Like you say, when different fields, different experiences, different uh, disciplines come together, all things are possible. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. 21st Century Renaissance. Hosted by Bebe Song. Produced by Ensinova. Thank you for watching.